let's go to unlocking revelation. And we've talked about what it takes to unlock this book that's got all of these different mysterious things, seals and, and scrolls and seven horsemen and dragons and horns and trumpets and bowls and all of these numbers that are floating around that sometimes seem to be literal, sometimes don't seem to be literal. How do we unlock the key to revelation? And I've suggested the keys to unlocking revelation are the following. First, understand that it's a type of literature. Now, for those of you who speak English, that means a specific type of literature. We call it apocalyptic literature from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means revelation are revealing. And so we've got a special kind of literature. Weston Fields, who is the director of the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation, who flits about this planet to make sure they get published, who would answer any questions you have about the scrolls, if you want to see him afterwards, is sitting right down here visiting, having just come back from Israel or South Africa or England or one of the Germany or one of the places where he's going around getting all this work done. And he would tell you the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were composed from about two, well, the, the texts that we have were written somewhere between 200 BC and 100 or 150 or so AD. Um, in that time frame, there are a number of scrolls that reflect apocalyptic literature. It was a very prominent type of writing at the time. It's so prominent, we also see it in some late biblical writings. We see it in Zechariah. We see it in Daniel. We see it in a number of places in the Old Testament, Ezekiel. And so we need to understand it as the literature type, but also understand the symbolism. The symbolism is especially drawn from the Old Testament, but it's also drawn from the culture of the day. We see a lot of the symbols through the Dead Sea Scrolls. Weston has been faithful and diligent. Each week as I send my lesson to him a week in advance, he goes through the Dead Sea Scrolls indexes that he's got. For 40 volumes of the scrolls, there's still another 15 or so needing to be published. If you have any extra money, I'm sure he would uh, let you donate it to the 501c3 that publishes these. But um, uh, in the midst of all of that, uh, uh, he goes through and he looks for these symbols for our class and he supplements my materials with them because it's a marvelous way to do it. So that's what we need to do. We need to unlock these symbols. Now, as part of that, the easiest symbols to understand sometimes are the numbers. Number three is a sacred number. We've talked about number four as an earthly number. Number seven when you add the sacred and the earthly, you get completeness, you get fullness. Seven is a full number. So we talked about those. We talked about how three is a sacred number. is shown over and over. God is. What is God in Revelation? He's holy, holy, holy. Three holies. He's who was, who is, and who is to come. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings. You'll see it over and over and over again. In chapter 19, if you're reading your Greek text especially, I was noticing it this morning following along with Pastor David. In chapter 19, the way the Greek is laid out, you see these the, the numerical significance so nicely. Um, um, so you get passages like, 
refocus. If any of you want to read Greek or do read Greek, you'll pick up on this. But this is, even if you don't, just looking at the significance, this is the Greek hey. It's it's a, an article. It's the definite article, the, in a feminine form. The salvation and the glory and the power are God's. Our God's. See, it's one, two, three. And you can get it in the English, but boy, it's so apparent when you're reading the Greek. It's just magnificent. So we go back to the PowerPoint. Um, three, a sacred number. Four, an earthly number. You get it over and over. There are four angels from the four corners. They hold the four winds back. There are four horsemen of the apocalypse. Four is an earthly number. Four elements. And this isn't unique to Judaism or Revelation. It's, it's rift throughout over a thousand years of writing in that time period. Greek writing, Egyptian writing, Mesopotamian dialects and languages. It's, it's uh, Babylonian. It's, it's rift throughout culture. We're the mathematical science age that have made a little turn and twist on numbers. The number seven... A full and complete number. So you've got the seven churches with the seven spirits, with the seven stars, with the seven lampstands. There are seven beatitudes in the book. Seven bowls of wrath. Seven trumpets of warning. You've got the sevens as a complete number. Seven is not the only complete number. If you take three, spiritual, and instead of adding it to four, earthly to get seven, you multiply it. Then you have another version of the complete number 12. There are 12 gates with 12 pearls that have the 12 tribes' names written on them with the 12 foundations that are the 12 apostles where there are 12 angels and there are 12 stars. There are 12 fruits of the tree of life. There are 24 thrones, which is 12 from the old covenant, 12 of the new covenant. There's 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times a thousand, which is a big multiplier. You just start adding zeros to things. It makes all the difference in the world. If you have any doubt about that at all, just suggest to whomever pays you to add a zero at the end of your check. And they will explain to you that makes a huge difference. If you get to add three zeros to the end of your check, can you imagine what that would mean? That's a good multiplier. Always has been, always will be. What's a zero among friends? It depends on where it comes on the check. Now, the structure of Revelation is very important. There are people who read Revelation in a linear fashion. And, and, and this is, I believe, where... And I could be wrong because we all move and change some. But I believe, for example, I think... A lot of people in here may read it that way. A linear fashion is, for example, it was written at the time of John. So you've got those letters to the churches and his experience on Patmos. And it goes to the end of the age, which you're clearly reading about at the end of Revelation 22. And so you try to figure out how those events all unfold within that time frame in a linear fashion. Not a linear fashion. Because Lanier is a little different. And so uh, uh, instead of just going from the seven churches to the ends of the age in a linear fashion, the Lanier approach is a parallel approach. I read it the same way you might read Daniel, an Old Testament book clearly 
um, used for many of the passages and the significance of the symbols and visions in Revelation. I think it's also used structurally in a similar way. It's a Hebrew parallelistic idea. Just like Hebrew poetry is parallel. The, the, the Hebrew mind seems to have worked well in parallel sequential. Um, the idea of us saying something and saying it again. Not having one witness, but having a second witness, two witnesses. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments aren't given once in the Old Testament, they're given twice. Moses' whole recounting of the law, in a sense, is given twice. The, uh, you, know, you, you just see this parallelism and this repetition that's a part of their mind thought. And it makes sense in a culture that was originally not a written culture. A culture that was a verbal culture. It makes sense that things are repeated. It just makes sense because that's how a principal way we remember things. So parallel structure. So you've got now seven sections. My seven's a little bleached out there. It will get better. Seven sections that repeat the time errors with different themes. Last week I talked about it like layers of an onion. And that's the way it is in your handout because your handout was written before last night. But last night at our Christmas program, I had a revelation. Of a better way to illustrate my point. Think of it like a track. Coach Bowman has lived his life around fields and tracks. Think of it like a track. And this is a track with seven lanes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are seven sections of Revelation that are running the same loop. Each one seems, in fact, I've misordered them. I should have put the one at the top because they seem to get a little fatter each time around. At least as they look toward the end times. They progress a little bit. But these are the seven loops and they all seem to start with something about Jesus' earthly ministry. The, 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 the nativity, the, 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 the ministry, the, the, what Jesus did, um, uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension unto heaven. What led up to his ministry, what his ministry involved. They all seem to start with Jesus' earthly ministry. And then each cycle goes through the gospel age. And this is the age of thlipsis in the Greek, the age of tribulation. The age, look, look, we are not, um, in, we are not after the tribulation. You, if, if any of you doubt whether or not you've got tribulation in your life, let me assure you, if you don't, you will. Okay? We live in an age of tribulation. Thlipsis is not a word unique to Revelation. It's a word that you'll read in the Greek throughout the old, in this world, you will have flipsis, tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Jesus told that to his apostles. It's true. And so we live in this age of tribulation, but there is a finish line in each of these cycles. In each of these cycles, the finish line is the end of time. And so you've got seven different cycles that describe from a different perspective the same track circle. 
starting with the earthly ministry of Jesus or earthly mission of Jesus, going through the tribulation that we live through as a church, and ending with the revelation of of Jesus' second coming and judgment and all that that entails. So, starts with Jesus' earthly mission, ends with the second coming, and we looked then at several of these cycles. We've covered four of them before today. I'm going to end class 10 minutes early for the whole group to get up here. That gives us 15 plus 10, 24 minutes to cover two sections. Fasten your seatbelts. Section number one talks about the importance, the cycle number one, the first lap around the track, if you will, is the holiness of the church and how important it is. So we start with Jesus walking among the lampstands. Jesus inaugurates this age of the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. The church is the uh, 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 recipient of life from Jesus. Without Jesus in the lampstands, you don't have the church. The lampstands are the church. And so you've got these letters then to seven churches. Seven meaning a whole and complete. Now, it's seven literal churches. Those are seven real churches. And if you go tour them, he wrote it in the postal codes in the sense that that's the order you'd go to. But, having said that, seven is also an indication that that's for the churches of the entire gospel age. It's a message for us today. We can read those letters to the churches and receive the warning and instruction and the teaching because the church is no less to be holy today than it was then. But judgment begins with the house of God in the Bible and we are expected to be a holy people. And that's the message there. And so as that gospel age continues to unfold and we get to the end of it, Jesus says to those churches... You And says to us today, you honor me with your holiness. Don't make me come and remove your lampstand. Don't make me come and pull you. And so it's an instruction for holiness. And that's the first run around the track. Then we start the second cycle of revelation. The second cycle of revelation is found in chapters 4 through 7. The second starts again. With Jesus' earthly mission. And there's a scroll with seals to unfold for the tribulation of the church. But there's a question. Who can open the scrolls of the church? Who can open the scrolls of the seal? Are the, the seals of the scroll of the church and what the church has before it? Is anybody worthy to inaugurate the history of the church? Only one. Jesus. Only the Lamb is able to inaugurate the Lamb who was slain, is worthy, has the worth, has the merit to open the seals, to open the scrolls, to reveal what is coming for His bride, the church. Nobody else can do that. And the Lamb can't do it absent being slain. There is no church. There is no body of the redeemed bought with the blood of the Lamb if the Lamb's not slain. 
So John sees the lamb slain. The lamb is worthy. The scrolls are open. And you start with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first is Jesus himself coming out on a white horse in the sense that the church comes first. But immediately on the heels, you've got the red horse. You've got persecution. Persecution did not wait. Apostles have already died martyrs' death and so have other believers by the time John's writing. Before Acts is halfway over, martyrs are dying. Paul's responsible for Stephen. James is taking a martyr's death. Immediately on the heels of the white horse in the church come persecution, come tribulation, economic, financial, all sorts of persecutions, physical. But as that section draws to an end, you've got 144,000 that are redeemed of the Lord and in his presence. So in the midst of all of the persecution and everything else, as you get to the end of the cycle, the end of times, we have the assurance that we read about. And you read about it in Romans, I mean, in Revelation 7, 13. And to the end of the chapter, this is the, this is it. 7, 13, automatic focus. One of the elders addressed me. Who are these clothed in white robes? These are the 144,000. Where have they come? I said, you know, they're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The gospel age where we live. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. They're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with their presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst no more, sun won't strike them, nor scorching heat. The lamb in their midst will be their shepherd, guide them to springs of water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we've got that. So we go back to the PowerPoint. And we've got this second stage. Now, we finish the second lap around the track. Another vision comes to John. It's lap number three. Lap number three, where does it start? Jesus's earthly ministry. And so we see lap number three and lap number three starts with very much so the incarnation. It starts with the lamb opening the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Silence in heaven. On that blessed night, the Christ is born. And so we've got the start of it. And the cycle is there and the lamb is present. But in this cycle, seven trumpets sound as we move into the gospel age. Trumpets could be used for various reasons. One of the principal reasons, trumpets were warnings. Whether they're warning the people in Jericho or whether they're warning the saints of God or they're warning about the coming of the Sabbath. They're warning about the season. They're warning. They are alerts. They are alarms. We don't use them today. We have apps for that. But they had trumpets. They had trumpets that would sound to tell them when Sabbath started and you couldn't walk any further. 
You couldn't work anymore. You better be close to home. There are a certain number of steps. The trumpets would sound. That was their alarm. That was their warning system. So we've got the seven trumpets. And these are the trumpets that are warning the unbelievers. And so in this... Well, let's go back for a minute. In this tribulation... There we go. In this tribulation period, what the, the thrust of this section is unbelievers be warned... You look at the tribulation. You look at what's going on in the world. And if you don't believe in Jesus, wake up. If you happen to be reading this, if you're a visitor at church, and it's being read to you and it's being talked about, they're going to tell you, these are signs that there is an end coming. And you should be warned and you should want your name written in the book of life. Because these are bad things that are happening. And those are the tribulations, the thalipsis with those trumpets being blown. And so then as this cycles to the end, you finish with the end of time. And so in chapter 11, again, you're going to read a cycle at the end of time. Chapter 11, the seventh trumpet is sounded. And here we've got the seventh trumpet. Angel blows his seventh trumpet. There are loud voices in heaven Saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. The 24 elders sitting on the thrones fall on their faces. They worship God, give thanks to you who is and who was. But it no longer says and is to come. Because this is the come has happened. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged, rewarding the saints, prophets, those who fear your name, small and great, destroying the destroyers of the earth. And the God's temple in heaven was opened. His covenant was seen within his temples. There's rumblings, peals of lightning. And that's the end of the cycle. By the way, at every cycle, who wins? Jesus. At every cycle, who loses? Satan and the bad guys. Which side do you want to be on? Jesus. And if you have any doubt, let me tell you about the fourth lap around the track. Because the fourth lap around the track starts with the fact that the theme of it is the unbelievers. If you're not, you, you get warned as an unbeliever. You don't heed the warning. You get judged. So. Next lap around the track. And I'm not talking about eternal judgment yet. I'm saying God judges on earth too. So here it is. Next lap around the track. We've just read the end of times. We've just read the one who was and is. Who is now reigning on the throne. Not the one who is to come. He has become the Lord of earth. That was clear in what we just read, right? Yet when you start this fourth cycle, you're going right back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the clearest places that you see what I'm talking about in terms of what the structure is. So look at chapter 12, the very next chapter. This is just right at the end of where we were. But it's another sign. He starts another one. And a great sign appeared in heaven. 
This is the way his visions start. A woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet on her head, a crown of 12 stars. That harkens back to any good Jew's mind to Joseph's dream. Um, yeah, she's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. There's a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns. He sweeps down a third of the stars from heaven. He casts them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So she, uh, when she bore her child, he might devour it. You're reading about the Christmas story here. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God in his, to his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. Half of the, the duration. And that's the tribulation period where the church is now. The woman are the redeemed of God. The chosen of God. They were Israel in the Old Testament. We've been grafted in in the New Testament. But from Israel came forth the Christ child. The Christ child Satan wanted to devour. He tried to devour. But the Christ child was not devoured. He went on to win victory and has ascended to the throne of God. And that's where these visions start. And then from there the visions go around. And and this is the spiritual warfare perspective of the cycle. And so it's what we talked about last week. And you've got the dragon, Satan, the Leviathan. In the Old Testament, Septuagint. This is the, he's the dragon. The dracon in Greek is dragon. And so you've got the, 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 the dragon. You've got not just the dragon. You've got these images that come out of Daniel of government. You've got these images that come out of Daniel of false religions and false ideologies. And all of the tools of Satan are called out to try and war against God's people and those who would be God's people. But in the midst of this spiritual warfare, Jesus wins. And so we can follow the four around on the fourth lap. And this is the one that ended last week. And we ended it last week. We looked at chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. But I just remind you of how it looks at the end. As we approach the end of this lap on the track. I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud. One like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling and said, put in your sickle, reap. The hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he swings his sickle across the earth and the earth is reaped. Then another angel comes out and he has a sharp sickle. And another angel who has authority over the fire calls out with a loud voice. Put in your sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swings his sickle across the earth. He gathers the grape harvest. He throws it in the wine press of the wrath of God. The wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Four times four times a thousand. All of the earth, all of the earth, everything is judged. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. And that judgment will come. And that's the end of the cycle. So we have the end of the fourth cycle. Now today, I've added the fifth cycle 
Though I may just like uh, tell you about it real quick because I want to get to the sixth cycle so we can have the seventh cycle next year. Okay? And I don't know why I didn't use a bicycle for the second cycle. But anyway. All right. The fifth cycle. It just came to me. I'm sorry. The fifth cycle starts out. And it starts out with... Jesus' earthly mission. And so you've got the people singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And this song is being sung. And then as that song's being sung, the unbelievers are being judged. Now, Moses, remember him? The real one, not the one coming out in the movie. Not even Charlton Heston, though he's a little closer. Moses goes to Pharaoh and before Pharaoh's army is destroyed, before Pharaoh and the firstborn sons are killed, what did Pharaoh have? Warning after warning after warning after warning. But he wouldn't heed the warning. So judgment came. And that same language is echoed in the text. And so you've got the plagues but the plagues are mixed with blood. And, and the plague language, it's the song of Moses. Because listen, John's saying, the, the, the people of this world get a warning. But those who don't heed the warning will get judgment. Pharaoh does not have to wait for the last day to get his final judgment. He's already started his judgment in his life. That's the way it goes. And so those seven bowls of wrath are being poured out. And the judgment ends with Armageddon. Because there will be at the end of time. The greatest intensity. That last fighting struggle. And this is what Pastor David was referencing this morning. I see that the same way. At the end of time, there is going to be the concentrated effort of Satan and his forces. But they will be defeated. And we get that at the end of this cycle. If you want to read about it, the seven bowls of wrath, the cycle ends with six, twelve. Yeah, I could go a little later, but we got time. Yeah, let's start with six. Well, we may not have time. Um, look, just read it. It's there. And it's in your text. I got, I got seven minutes. Let's keep going. All right. So now we're ready for cycle number six. And this is what Pastor David was preaching about this morning. Cycle number six. But I'm going to tell you, cycle number six starts out with Jesus's earthly mission. It's the seductress Babylon. The woman on the red beast. The prostitute. The pornane. We get the word porno from it. Who's working out her porno. That's sexual immorality. Actually, porno would mean, let's, let's get the Greek out of the way. But it's from porno, the verb porno, okay? And, 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 or porneo. Anyway, the, uh, the, the Greek is clear. This is, this is all the seduction. This is Babylon and all of its permutations. Not just Rome, historical Babylon. All the seductions of this world. And Jesus has already won. Jesus has already defeated the seductress. Look at Revelation 17. This is where it starts. 
Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. He carried me into a spirit, in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And you keep recounting all the way through this, but look what happens as you read about it. And you work through it. In the coming of Christ, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Jesus conquers the demons. Jesus conquers Satan. Jesus wins in the wilderness. Satan's not able to beguile Jesus, get him off mission, do anything at all. Jesus pronounces from the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You may say, well then why is Satan out there messing up my life? Because misery loves company. But he's defeated. The end is not in doubt. This is why Jesus is the lamb who's worthy to open the scrolls. He has ensured the win. He's ensured each lap ends the same way. And so that's what we have here. And we have fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a dwelling place for demons. Go back to the text for me for a moment, please. She's become a dwelling place for demons. Oh, there it is. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. All the nations have drunk the wine. I mean, this stuff's going on right now. You look around you and it's going on. But what does the church need to know during this time period? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. She's fallen. Do you really want to live with her? You know what's going to happen. So during this tribulation time, this gospel age, come out of her, lest you share in her plagues. Her sins are heaped as high as heaven. God's remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she's paid back others. She glorified herself. She lived in luxury. But her reign is over. And so this passage ends. in eight, This cycle ends in 1821. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. At the end of time, she will be gone. She will be no more. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all the slain on earth. She's responsible for it all, but in the end, she gets her due. We go back to the PowerPoint. And so this sixth cycle that goes around, Satan's run and Satan's fall is as definite as all the rest. And we have at the end of this cycle in chapter 19 what David read about this morning. We have the marriage supper of the lamb. We have the right horse. Look, if we can look at the text. I got two minutes. Okay, fast. Look at the text. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. We've already seen him on the white horse at the start. Refocus. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges, he makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. He has a name written no one knows, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And he rides forth and he rides forth in victory. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. That's the way, if we go back to the PowerPoint, that's the way it ends. The cycle ends with all of the people gathering down in the great white throne judgment. And all of Satan and all of the Babylon and all of the condemned and everybody responsible for all of the ills whose names are not written in the book of life are judged. That's the end. And that cycle is going to be the, is going to show the same end that each of the other cycles have. It's just the key for me, as I warn you about ahead of time, let's go back here, is Revelation 20 starts another cycle. So that's going to give you a clue to how I understand it. I can't wait to tell you about it next week. Here are your key takeaways. I'm warned. I got no excuses. You heard this? You got no excuses. Nobody has any excuse not to be washed in the blood of the lamb. Right? Nobody's got an excuse. John's going to say at the end of his book, don't anybody add to this book. Don't anybody take away. He doesn't want any distraction. He doesn't want anybody taking any of these pieces out. He doesn't want anybody adding anything in. You take this book, you read this book because he wants it very clear. We got no, we've been warned. We've got no excuse. And I'm not going to be surprised. I'm not surprised at the tribulation of this age. I'm not surprised when people ignore the warnings of God. I'm not surprised at judgment that falls on them. I'm not surprised at tribulation on the believer. But I'm also not surprised that Jesus is victorious, that he has paved a way, that he watches over us, that he takes care of us, and he has already won a victory, and he will secure us for eternity, and we will see that and experience that and live that. So that means I'm expectant and I'm waiting. Come, Lord Jesus.